Dale Trumbore has been called a rising star among modern choral composers, and her music has been praised for its soaring melodies and beguiling harmonies by the New York Times. Her album, How to Go On, debuted at number six on Billboard's traditional classical chart. As a composer who frequently works with words, Trumbore is passionate about setting poems, prose, and found texts by living authors to music. She has written extensively about overcoming creative blocks and establishing a career in music. She's currently working on her first book. I sat down with Dale at the Alternate Thursday Studios in West Hollywood, California to discuss her career. Dale Trumbore, welcome to Classical Chops. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about some projects that are happening right now in your amazing career. Sure. Right now I'm working on three choral pieces, though not all at once. Um, But the one I'm really focusing on now is for Golden Bridge, which is a pop-up chorus. Um, It happens once a year in September, and the conductor is Susie Digby. And uh, she lives in England, but she comes to USC, and she guest teaches, and uh, she also runs this chorus, this once-a-year amazing chorus of professional local musicians in the L.A. area. So this is my second time writing for them. And I'm writing a piece for unaccompanied, or it's not unaccompanied because there's cello. <laughs> so it's, oh, nice. Uh, SATB chorus and cello. And cello, obligato. Yes. And she's also a member of the aristocracy, isn't she? Yes, she's oh, lady. Good. I wonder if she's uh, at the... Lady Eatwell. Do you think she was at the royal wedding? I don't no, I could I'm ask gonna, I'm going to come to this premiere and <laughs> ask her. I need to know this. You should. Okay. Um, and it takes place at All Saints, Beverly mm-hmm. Hills, right? Yeah. Wonderful. You should come this year to the concert. When is the premiere? It's September 8th. Yeah. No, I'd love to go. It's and- beautiful. It pairs uh, Renaissance motets and madrigals with contemporary works that are loosely, lightly based on a piece that they're paired with. Okay. Um, so mine is If You Love Me, the Talus piece. And, oh, nice. Um, yeah. So what, tell me about companion pieces a little bit. I remember back in the day it was a little bit, I guess it was trendy to always have a companion piece. Maybe like Pierrot Ensemble, maybe the ultimate companion piece. So how did you... <laughs> like every Pierrot <laughs> right, piece can right. be paired with Pierrot itself. Totally. Yeah, I actually really like it. It makes even more sense as a listener than as a composer, where you have sort of an in to every contemporary piece, right, if it's loosely based on another piece. And as a composer, I think that can be a, a good or bad thing, depending on right. sort of on your mood, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we're going to get to mood in a minute. Oh, we can, we can talk about mood. <laughs> so then what did you, what did you um, extract? How did you go about this? You listened to the Talos piece, obviously, and what did you extract from that? Was it an atmosphere? Was it actually material? It's Yeah, for this one. So this is my second time doing this process. And I did it much more literally with the other piece I wrote for them. And that piece was? Uh, that one's, my piece is Spiritus Mundi, and it's based on Timor at Tremor by Orlando de, de Lasus or mm. de Lasso. Uh, de Las, yeah, it's yeah. depending on how you're, <laughs> where you think he's <laughs> where you're at. from and what you feel like calling him. Did you go to Lagrimé? I did go to Oh, my. We need a separate podcast on that. It was, yeah, it's beautiful. Okay, should we digress for a second and talk about that? Sure. (laughs) My gosh. I saw it twice. (gasps) I saw the the first time around, and then when they did it again, um, at the same time as the, yeah, Chorus America. Or no, maybe it was ACDA. Right. Yes, you're right. It was a concurrent choral festival, and that was the last event of that festival, um, I think. So, the Lagrimé de San Pietro, what... Tell me, how did your life change after that? 
That's, I mean, that's another way. So they staged it, right? They choreographed it. And that's just another way of welcoming in the audience and the listener in a way where you, you don't have to know anything about the piece of music. It certainly helps if you do, but you could, I think you could come to that performance knowing nothing about classical music at all. And because the um, choreographed movements express what's happening in the music, like in a, a visceral, emotional way, and also in a literal, sometimes like if they're describing bows and arrows, you know, they make a, a motion that's like you're pulling a bow across right. the string, but, uh, or an arrow across the bow. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you do love choral music and love polyphony and counterpoint and all of that, then like seeing this visual manifestation of the ways that the different lines are coming together, it's this extra layer of it just enhances it. mind-blowing beauty. Right, yeah. right. Now, do you feel, because I've noticed a lot of this happening lately, like there needs to be kind of extra elements, shall we say, that the days of just walking out on stage and performing something seem to be fewer and further between. So how do you feel about that? Like in this case, obviously, it enhanced the experience. I, I mean, I, I definitely think you should, your art should be able to stand and speak for itself, even if someone's coming in and they don't know who you are and they don't know anything about the piece. But at the same time, if you can open that door or a, a window for the audience, <laughs> right? Just something where they, they have something to listen for. Uh, or I think you can do that in a program note. Sometimes you can do that just in a piece title. But again, that idea of you're welcoming them into the house that is your piece, right? You're letting them choose how they enter that house and right. how they respond to it. Well, and even a pre-concert talk can change things. Of course, absolutely. And I found that with my own. Like, you know, you and I, we've gone to grad school together, and sometimes I'm shocked by how someone's pre-concert lecture will literally change the entire piece that probably I wasn't even into before I got there. Mm. And then thought, wow, this is amazing how it can reorient your entire experience. Yeah, I think as listeners, we we appreciate things that feel familiar to us. And anything that can make an unfamiliar piece feel familiar, even in that first listen, is something that we we respond to really well. And there's so many ways of getting about that, getting at that. You definitely don't need, you know, lighting or dancers or whatever. But right. those those can all help. But I, like you said, a pre-concert talk or a, a well-written program note uh, that, again, opens the door rather than obscures. I think program notes can go the other direction <laughs> oh where gosh. you're like, I don't understand anything you just said. And now I hate the piece before I've heard a note of it. Oh, yeah, I've had my fair different. share of that. Uh-huh. Just like, let's purposefully obscure them. I think we've all maybe written them too as well. Oh <laughs> I had pieces where I used to change the program note every time, just oh purposefully, just like to, to the opposite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, okay, so wait, just let's just jump back to the to the talus and your golden bridge piece. So this time around, what did you? How did you use the talus as so, a jumping off point? Yeah, it's it's more about specific intervals and just little motives, like ascending by steps and descending by steps, and that the the first little bit of the melody that we hear that that little melody comes up in my piece as well. But I wanted to make it a much more subtle connection this time, whereas the other piece, Spiritus Mundi, is taking actual uh, harmonic progressions from that and and sort of, you know, manipulating them a little bit, but carrying those into the piece that I wrote. Right. So it's not really appropriation, but it's... Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's taking... Germinal material. Taking inspiration, yeah, from like a very 
small idea. And Which, if you think about it, was kind of like the entire history of music. Yeah, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it seems like only till lately that that's not okay to do for some reason. Right. And, and everything, who, like sometimes we might be doing it and we don't even realize. Right. Like if some tiny fragment of something resembles something that we've heard and loved before, that's maybe we've been inspired by it, but we wouldn't label it as like, oh, I'm intentionally quoting this specific piece right here. Okay, so next season, the uh, Los Angeles Master Crowd will be presenting uh, How to Go On, which is your requiem? Is that how you would describe Tell me how you describe this work. Yeah, I, I call it a secular requiem. Someone... <laughs> I've seen on Twitter or something, someone was calling it a, a sequiem. Or no, oh. maybe it was someone at a, a concert I did. <laughs> we a were talking sequiem. about wanting to write secular requiems. A sequiem. That's kind of cool. I, I don't usually use that word. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I hesitate to use the word requiem, too. When I, when I spell it on paper or on a screen, it has a lowercase r because it doesn't, it doesn't use any of the traditional requiem texts. Um, and it's not... You know, it's not a mass. It's not, it doesn't carry that religious weight with it. And that's kind of the whole point is it's contemporary texts by living poets that reflect our process of death and get into what happens after death without actually addressing the afterlife, talking about like the the natural process in a way that's actually really beautiful and talking about how we process grief when we survive a loss. And so what did you learn? It seems like the piece must have taught you a lot about yourself. Yeah, it came out of it came out of my own having kind of a dark moment, dark night of the soul, um, confronting my own mortality for no, you know, big life moment or anything. There wasn't something necessarily that prompted it. It was I was actually uh, doing a bunch of meditating, which I've gotten back into, but I, I started thinking about death and it hit me like a physical force that one day I'm going to die and what if my consciousness just stops existing, which is something that I guess we sort of think about this, but we don't necessarily dive head on into that thought. And For that obvious feeling. reasons. Right. And I don't recommend you do it if you're listening. <laughs> like, don't start contemplating your own mortality unless you're in a, a place where you can sort of give yourself room to move through it. That's something I've learned. And this piece is kind of that for me. And it actually has become, the words at least, have become something that now if I'm lying awake at night, um, just thinking about death and feeling very anxious, I can actually think about the words that I set to music, not even necessarily the music that I wrote, but just the poetry. And it's so, it just feels so comforting. Do you think that could be some kind of projection just from that the creative process mirrors this? I mean, that came up in you that it was like every piece kind of goes through a birth and a life and a I don't want to say death, but it ends. Maybe. And I've, I've been thinking about that a lot, too, uh, about the ending of a project and how that does. It feels like, um, like a mourning process or like a breakup or something, you know, where something that you've been so invested in and where you've been giving all of your time and your energy and your love and your attention to this thing. and Nurturing it. it. It's nurturing it and then also bringing it to life with other people. When you write a piece, there's so many, even if you're just collaborating with one person, usually you're also then bringing it to a larger audience. And it's it's such a thing. It's such a big, long timeline for every piece we write. And then it just ends. And then it ends. Then it's over. Right. Everyone gives you a hug. Great. Yeah. Bravo. Review. You have like some wilting roses that your <laughs> friends gave you. You're like, thanks. This, these are pretty. Like, 
the last for you know two weeks and then they'll be dead too. <laughs> right, that is tricky. So what uh, is gone. which is can also just be a beautiful thing, right? Right. It's, when you hope the piece has a life in other forms, but it, and that's actually kind of a funny thing with with how to go on with this piece itself. Is it kind of went through this process of years of collaboration, finding the right poems and all of that, and then after Choral Arts Initiative in Orange County premiered it, they commissioned it and they premiered it, and then. I felt so, like, I felt so lost after because it was the biggest piece I'd, it's 35 minutes long, it's the biggest piece I've, I'd written. Okay, so tell me how it's put together because it's interesting. This piece is kind of a, I mean, you're allowed to rearrange the movement of the song. Or the, yeah, it's sort of modular, I guess, in modu- a way. Yes, um, modular. Sonder Choi, our mutual acquaintance, uh, composer friend, used that word for a piece once. Yeah. And I was like, yes, yeah. it is. It's I a always modular use that. piece. <laughs> Like Stockhausen, some of those piano, yeah, yeah. the Klaverstücke, they're modular. Modular. I just forget that it's a word you can use about music. Yeah. It makes me think of, it think makes of you think furniture. Mi- yeah, something. it makes me yeah. mid-century, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell me how it's put together. Uh, yeah, so it can be in any order, and the there's one very long, or it's not very long, but there's one like eight, eight and a half minute long movement, and then there's one two minute long movement, and most of the other movements are around three or four minutes. And you can, depending on how you adjust those movements, the journey kind of becomes a little different. And it it does go from being kind of, from being very internal and talking about how we process grief and setting poems in the first person to to talking about it in a more general sense and to talking about communal loss and, and addressing someone who has been lost. But the the last movement should stay the same. I have that in the in the program note. Um, in the, the performance la- note. What does the last movement tell us about this journey? It's I mean it, it talks Hopeful. about it's expressing the narrator's wish for their body to become sort of this natural oasis, almost like this like as it's decomposing into dirt, which is something we think of again, we think of death as like this dark thing and we don't really want to think about it, but the author, Amy Fleury, turns turns this decomposition into a, a source of new life. And she she talks about this transformation of the human body into, into, spirit, into nature into, and yeah. spirit. Exactly. I've been having the same kind of thoughts lately, and I came to the conclusion that actually it doesn't exist. Like what death is, itself. Death, yeah, hmm. like literally doesn't exist. Yeah. I guess if you think about time, we're getting like real, real I deep know, here. I love this. <laughs> this is my dream. I love this one. But I, I think it only exists in linear time, right? Right, like which there's is... there's a whole where were we before we were born, because that's right. possibly where we go exactly. back to. Exactly, yes. And then if that, if time wasn't linear, then where would we... Right, right. So the only um, kind of variable here is the ego, which is probably what's directing all of this, right? Telling yeah. us, oh... You're going to be eaten by worms and all that. <laughs> also, I have this. I read this book that no one knows. It was a interviewer that went through 19th century, interviewed Brahms. I don't know if you've read oh. it. And they all tell Brahms, Strauss, Humperdinck, <laughs> and they basically just tell their how, what they're doing. Uh-huh. And it's beyond the. I, sc- I mean, that. Brahms especially. That? Yeah, yeah. It's. I couldn't stop reading it. It's. Unbelievable. The spiritual process is, mm. and you think Brahms, like the agnostic and yeah, yeah, yeah. grumpy, and no, 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 no. He <laughs> was plugged in to like source energy, and it was he was just transcribing. Mm. It's a problem with writing choral music as someone who identifies as agnostic or atheist mm-hmm. that you're confronted with this tradition that is so 
so religious. Like, the background of choral music is so caught up in churches. And as an atheist or as someone who's agnostic, how do you carve a line? Your how do you acknowledge line. that and then still move forward in this really old tradition while writing music that does, you know, that, that doesn't... Right, has that a isn't different rooted path. in that at all. Right, yeah. right. Well, I think you've answered that. Like, you acknowledge it, right? Yeah. You don't reject it. Yeah. And then you just go your own direction, which you're doing so brilliantly. This episode of Classical Chops is sponsored by the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. Committed to making great music personal, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra has concerts for everyone. From Baroque music to full, lush orchestral concerts and contemporary music, see what's playing at laco.org. Enjoy 10% off your ticket order using the code CLASSICALCHOPS. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your approach to composition, because it seems that you've really figured out resilience hmm. while you're creating. And how did you do that? And was there a point where you went the opposite direction? You're like, okay, this, this is just not working. I think I'm, I'm very much in my head all the time, which is a blessing and a curse, as maybe <laughs> you know too. <laughs> oh, but what are you saying? Hmm. Oh my gosh. Sure, you've never experienced never any no. creative anxiety before. But, never, um, <laughs> but no, I I overanalyze things, everything, pretty much for for better or worse, and that has actually been a really wonderful thing in my own process because when things aren't going well in the creative process, I want to drill down and get at the root of why they're not working and how I can make them work better the next time. And so when I'm actually when I sit down to compose, I have very there's like basically no no anxiety, no overanalyzing about the actual work that I'm doing while I'm doing it. Okay, so resistance is basically off the table. Yes. How did you get to that point? Uh, making space for feeling for for writing things that I might think are not amazing, but that I know I can always go back and fix later. So judgment was immediately yes. taken. Right. Taking off right. judgment. And then that lets you write music or do whatever you're doing. And I write words too. So writing in any form, it lets you just do it and then accept that you can judge it later. You can and you will and you should judge it later and edit and all of that. But just getting getting stuff on the page is the most important part. And without that, you can't move forward. Which is basically you're saying getting into flow. Yes. That everything else is kind of coming in that would snip the creative process. Yeah. So you're literally just... Well, did you experience the opposite of that? I mean, were there times where it was... I've absolutely had those days as well. And I still have those days. And I think it's important to say that even though I feel like I've figured out my own process to the point where I can create without judgment every day if I have to. I also, when I have a bad day, I, I know myself well enough to know when it's time to step away and just give up for the day and come back the next day. And I've done that enough times that I know maybe not the next day, but in two or three, by two or three days later, it will be better. Right. It'll be better. Now, do you keep a strict schedule with your composing? I don't. I aim to compose like around two hours a day if I'm nowhere near a deadline, Monday through Friday, sometimes weekends too. I basically don't have weekends. There's, um, I read actually a quote, it was, must have been some some interview online, I think, with Missy Mazzoli, where she said every 
nights. If, like for a composer, every night is Friday night and every morning is Monday morning. <laughs> I love that. And I, like, yeah, I love that so much because it's so true. Like in theory, there's, you know, I, each day is a new potential work day where I could get a lot done or I could choose to just completely slack off that yeah, evening and, and watch a lot Facebook. of Netflix and like no one's going to be holding me accountable if I if I'm not near a deadline if I'm near a deadline and I'm missing the deadline then maybe right someone would be mad so this goes to more kind of like esoteric thought that and I tell my students as some reason I don't tell myself but um that the actual product the artistic product is is a byproduct of your focus Hmm. so it's not really about I know for myself I'm so worried about the actual piece but it's not that's the byproduct of you sitting down and allowing Yes. Right? I love that. That's what you're saying. Yeah. It's just really difficult to get there sometimes. Absolutely. So tell me some other techniques. So so the ability to like just say, okay, I've maxed out today. That's if if things are really not going well. And then sometimes too, if they're going really, really, really well, then like making sure that I've sort of mentally carved out the, well, physically carved out the room in my schedule for those two hours. They can be great or they can be awful, but I have them. And then knowing that if I come back, if I'm like in the groove today and I step away, it's going to continue tomorrow because I've kept in touch with the piece enough days in a row that it's it's just going and it's sort of almost going without me. Like where I just show up at the piano and put in the time and then the piece gets written. I love that. Did you read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic? Big Magic? Yeah. There was yeah. a lot of that kind of idea, yeah. there, right? That yeah. The ideas have consciousness. Yeah, I love her idea of, or her, her concept of ideas jumping from one person to another. It's so, like, it's a little oh, yeah. blue and out there, but it's I've seen that happen. Brilliant. Have you seen, or, like, titles, I'll notice. Yes. I'll have a title in my head, yes. I'll ignore it, and then next thing you know, it pops there up on it Facebook. And... I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I should have used it, but also maybe not, because now it's right. over there, and that person's... But I think that goes back to what I was saying about just, it's all flowing, right? Yeah. We're just like this antenna. Yes. And it's just flowing through, and you can throw the resistance and not do it, and it'll just find its way. It'll find its way out some way. I love Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. Have you read that? No, I have not. It's, so the book Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott is about writing words, but it's so applicable to any creative art. And I love that, and I love Stephen King's book on, on writing. On writing, yes. And uh, between, Mary Oliver, she has one on writing poetry. That oh, I need to read that. Yes, okay. Yes, have you found like I know I've been doing this lately. I'm just maybe because of grad school, just like done with all the music. But right, it's like I need something else. I've been reading art history books and mm. and what, like what you're talking about. So are you finding that you're doing the same thing? Just as a little yeah, I actually love. I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I love reading more than I like in my free time. I love reading more than I love listening to music because listening to music and I've been sort of hesitant to talk about this but I've been thinking about it so much lately let's go there where I I listen to like I'm driving around in my car and I listen to KUSC and my my fiance it's still weird saying fiance no, I know congratulations um, but he like he has all these pop stations too so I, mm. I think circle back and forth between K, classical KUSC and the pop radio that usually is terrible so I go back to KUSC and then when I'm not in my car I'm usually thinking about a piece that I'm writing or I just I want I I don't want more music in my head because I want that space for the music I could be writing and so I don't listen to that much music which is is great 
well, dirty, horrible secret, but I, I can't. <laughs> you heard it here first, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I can't listen to music and do anything else also. Like, See, I, I think that's part of that. I, the same thing's happening to me. I think it's because we've almost been overeducated. Yes. Right? Yes. So you can't I'm just enjoy. Right. The you, whole time. I'm listening to something. And for me, it's like analyzing and comparing to my own piece that I'm trying to write. And then it's just. Or comparing to other pieces you know. And uh, you're like, is it better or worse? Than is this it piece? right? This doesn't serve anyone that doesn't it yeah. takes up a massive amount of bandwidth which then there goes the creative right. you know that was all supposed to be directed towards your creativity yeah yeah and i know some people like they, they listen to classical music as they're doing work or they're right? writing Studying. they're writing their book and they have a soundtrack and i'm like if i put on anything especially anything with words but pretty much any music at all while i'm trying to write words or get anything done mm-hmm. then i'm thinking about the music yeah Again. short circuits and it, it can't yeah. it doesn't it just doesn't work. Right. Okay, so then places you are going, so uh, literary treatises, basically, on yeah. the process. and books and short stories and memoir, too, I really love. So you've always been, like, the li- literary works have always inspired you musically. How Since the beginning, since you were young? Since I, well, my, my aunt is the former poet laureate of Louisiana. She's uh, taught English uh, for many, many, many years. She's a very accomplished poet. Her name is Julie Kane. And uh, she's also my godmother. And I grew up with, I grew up with her, right, as a, a big influence, knowing that, that this was, you know, a, a relative, a close, wonderful family member who is just does really, really excellent work and has published lots of books and, and all of that. And then my parents also are both editors. Or were, my dad's retired now, but he edited a newspaper. He and my mom met each other because they were both um, working in, in fiction editing books. And then my mom uh, was an educational, or still is, uh, an editor for educational, more like textbooks and learning resources. And now she writes children's books. And then I just, I grew up It's like up a natural this, progression. Oh my God, like so many English majors in my family. Like I come from this long lineage of writers. Or maybe not, it's not long so much as, you know, well. horizontal on the, <laughs> on the family tree. It's everyone. I have another aunt too, also my mom's sister, uh, who is the, an editor of magazines. So I, I grew up thinking like either I'll be a journalist or I'll be a musician Something with words. Something involved. with words or a writer. Now tell me about this. So okay, you're you're you've got some text. How do you differentiate when the text is actually or how do you determine, I should say, when the text is asking for music and when it mm. might not be? And it very much depends on the project that you're working on and also on what you are looking for in a text. So a text that I might find not settable for me might be something that someone else responds to really you know, tremendously so, um, or that maybe that I would respond to 10 years from now, but I, I, for whatever reason, you know, that's not the style I'm writing in now, or it's too, anyway. For me, a poem that's highly settable is one where both the language and the meaning of the poem allow space for music. So where the meaning is aligned with something that I'm interested in conveying in the work that I'm doing now and where the words themselves have, uh, it, it comes down to actual physical space sometimes. Like, can I, are there words where I can sort of open up the spoken rhythms, the natural speech patterns that the words fall into and um, and kind of stretch that into music? Or where there's inherent, 
because I don't know. I start getting into this, and then I'm like, well, but you know, the opposite <laughs> is also true sometimes. And it's well, that's um, what's great about being an artist is that you you can have both. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's, it's full like, of everything is full of contradictions. Contradiction. Every single Thank thing God. about a career in the arts is full of contradictions. Like everything and its opposite are true. Right. So, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about being a choral composer, which I don't actually think of you as only a choral composer. I'm glad that you don't because I've, oh, gosh, I think no. of myself less as a... Well, I just played an orchestra piece well, of yours. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've been getting more into writing orchestral and chamber works, and I wrote only choral music for like four years or something back like two or three years ago. I had only written choral music. And and we both did graduate work at a school that was very, I mean, everything was basically choral or There's so vocal, much room, right? yeah, right. There's a class writer-composer where we all worked with, with writers who were in, like, getting their master's or their MFA degrees and singers who were getting their graduate degrees and then I we loved composers. That right? It was great. Although <laughs> in that course, I had just written or was writing Snow White Turns 60, which is a 30-minute long <laughs> song cycle. And so I was so burnt out. And so I wrote these really mediocre choral pieces in writer-composer that have not seen the light of day since. But I, I would love to redo would love oh, to, yeah. a chance to go back in time and redo that class and be like, doesn't matter that you just wrote 30 minutes of art song. You gotta, you gotta write 15 more. <laughs> so tell me a little uh, bit about the stigma. I mean, uh, am I assuming there's, I don't feel like there's a stigma being a choral composer, but there, tell me from your perspective. It feels like there is only when, I think it's when people don't know that I do anything else and assume that that's all I do, then I start feeling, I start getting defensive. It's like, no, I like I have, like this year I have two orchestral premieres, which I'm really excited about. And I, I have, a lot of my work does, even if it doesn't have a singer, it still responds to text in some way or the titles inspired by a poem. Or That's true of almost, almost everything I do. So you could put me in that group, right? You could correctly stereotype what I do by assuming that, it all relates, or most of it relates back to some literary like, well, influence. That seemed to work for composers for what, like a thousand <laughs> years or more. But I, but there is, I think, in the new music community too. There, okay, right. That's where we yes, get. Yes, that's this, where I'm going for. Yes. That's where I'm going. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So choral music. A lot of it is very bad. Like a lot of it being written today. <laughs> Saying this is like it's a fact because it is. There's like a lot of really derivative, awful choral music out in the world and there's also some really wonderful challenging music for voices being written as well and i think obviously that like there's bad you know there's bad orchestral music right. being written too and there's bad whatever there's but probably more difficult <laughs> somehow the i guess because of the high school situation and in amateur yes. choirs right you can things can slip in where to get a, like a community orchestra probably to even play anything is Right, it's it's difficult. How does that? So, tell me how that influences what you're actually writing, as far as accessibility and practicality, and how you push the boundaries so that it's something that's accessible, I guess. And yeah, um, I actually I really love having like sort of having boundaries to bump up against, and and that idea of accessibility because so much choral music, it's true. Like your market, if you are a composer who writes a lot of choral music and wants it to be published or self-published and purchased and performed, you want 
music that your big market can actually do. Right. And in this case, your market is high school choirs, maybe middle school choirs, and collegiate choirs. That's where there are so many choirs, and maybe community choruses as well. And all of those groups, um, except for, you know, really really great collegiate groups, there are certain restrictions you have to keep in mind the whole time, whether that's just range or for middle school voices that some people's voices have changed and some people's have not, or, or just an issue of hearing different, being able to jump multiple descending minor (laughs) sixths, you know, or or minor sevenths or major, for some reason, sixths, descending sixths give people trouble. Okay. Um, I'll keep that in mind. In general, I don't know, for singers who aren't, who haven't taken four years of ear training or whatever, you know. But I, I actually really like those restrictions because... Because um, you can play with them? Nice, you can yeah, it's nice to have the... something to, to bump up against and to see, like, how far you can push that while still staying in the range of, of accessibility. Um, what are some things yeah. that you've written that just... It's like, okay, never again with that as far as like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a technique or or like the, yeah, the descending minor six. Or is there something that's yeah. just like always? Well, even the descending minor six, I, I say that, but then in the right context, like if you had a piece that was in minor and going from do down to may and you'd already established where may is and then they went up to, that would be easy. That, right. That would be easy so for them to So it's all context. Sing. It's all context. Okay. Um but things I've done, for some reason, when I've written aleatoric sections, they, they're say. never as good as I think they're going to be. Um, I can get away with it in piano writing sometimes because I have this like very specific ripply thing <laughs> that I do. <laughs> it's like, here's a collection of notes, and now you make them ripple right. like uh, very quickly <laughs> and that's easy easy to express it, i didn't On make it up other people yeah. you could right yeah you could do it in any yeah i've noticed that with singers that's one thing i've taken out off the table it's just like the aleatoric giving them too much freedom almost stresses everyone out yes and with a chorus you get um you get a whole bunch of people where they're they're kind of waiting for a cue and it's like no you have to initiate no, this you are the cue by yourself yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you are no. cueing yourself and then they sing it they sing it once and then they're, they're, is it time to come back in or do I, do I give it more time? Or then they sing it again and then they're kind of tentative and they're like, do I sing it again or do I wait? <laughs> and you just get this, it's chaos sometimes. It's, right. It can be done well. Right. Again, contradictions. I, I'm saying it usually doesn't work for me, but there are people who do it very successfully. And, and aleatoric music, of course, could be, you can be leaving virtually any parameter up to them. So what I'm talking about is like you give them something little to sing over and over again. Right. And they're sometimes just not sure when and how, how many times, right. how loud. Is, is Even it? if you put all these on the page, you've given instructions. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think it's that like herd mentality. Yeah, <laughs> like no one wants yeah. to, they want to, they've been taught to stay with the group. And so that jumping out of the texture by themselves is maybe scary. And I think that's but, why it's yeah. different for orchestra players because in a, especially with a string section, we're all kind of thinking like, oh, I'd like to be the soloist. So Dale, I want to talk about, you are um, well-written, shall we say. You have a lot of articles on, it's the New Music Box website, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start at the last one that's on your website, which is why I'm not getting a doctorate. Ah, I did not want a doctorate. So it's been, I graduated with my master's from USC, which is how we know each other. Yes. Uh, back in 2011. While I was doing my doctorate. Yes. And I, I entered. <laughs> should have read this then. You should have given me this article then. 
I am, again, this is a personal preference. It's not for everyone. Some yeah. people like doctorates and not them. I entered as the only, in 2009, as the only master's student in my year. And so I thought of your entering DMA class as like my, yeah, my it was people. Yeah, I was like, I have no other people. Like, yeah, people it was 2009. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but it was, it was kind of oddly... But you only being the only master's student. Uh, yeah, I blocked all that. So I'm so you entered because I felt like some of the master's students entered with that you almost had signed up for the doctorate. But no, it didn't work like that. No. So you just okay. I there's at USC there's always the option of getting you can get your master's and then just continue right, on to your doctorate. Right, it was like a package deal. If you want that. Okay. No, but I think it's very much on the table if I you see. realize you want it. You just keep going. And I I realized I didn't want it. I got to the end of my master's degree, and I, I realized at the last semester that I had basically senioritis again. Right. Like my last semester of, um, of college, I had, I think I had a straight, it was like I had a straight A college, you know, average, and then my last semester, I stopped going to a bunch <laughs> of classes, <laughs> and I, I've always been like such an overachieving, yes. you know, yeah. people pleaser. People pleaser. I've okay. always been... <laughs> So what was it? Um, was that a little PTSD I just or got something? Bored or something. Okay. I think in college I got I got bored. I was taking some Shakespeare class and I took one Shakespeare class that I loved and I was taking this other one. It wasn't as good. And I was like, this is at USC? Oh no, at, at an undergrad at oh, Maryland. I was gonna University say that sounds great. We should have taken Shakespeare classes. No, I wish. God. I wish. How did you kind of make that decision? What was it that was not appealing? So I was feeling very burnt out at the end of my master's, and I realized that to go straight into the doctorate would be just a, a disaster in that going in with that feeling of burnout on, on, on classes of- <laughs> it, itself, on right. the, the busy work, and obviously you've, you know, you have less busy work in grad school than you do as an undergrad, which is great, and there's less in undergrad than in high school, and it gets more friendly. The kind of work that you're doing, it's work that you generally want to be doing, but it's it's still writing papers and doing lots of research, and I just wanted to compose. Uh, I had been having some success, uh, not a ton of financial success yet, but I'd, I'd, had, I'd been commissioned, and um, I knew... So I, I knew that I wanted to do this big, this album with a, a friend, Jillian Hollis, who... Um, actually, just she just did a piece of mine that was 20 minutes long for soprano and chamber ensemble in Chicago, and that was amazing. And I, I adore her. And back in 2011, I wrote um, basically I think we had an hour of art songs, and we planned this project. This was sort of my um, I'm not getting a doctorate, so I'm going to do something else to sort of try and put myself on the map and give myself an excuse to promote my work. Right. Uh, so I made this album of art songs, and then we went on a five-state tour, which was very, you know, very small, just places where we had friends and family. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, but I I gave myself three years, I think it was, yeah, uh, three years to see if my career either continued its upward trajectory that it had been on for the last, you know, six years, um, or if it started, my, my idea was if it plateaued or if it went downward if I was getting fewer commissions or fewer score sales or any of that each year, then I would consider going back to grad school. I see. And so there there was a three-year period where I kept that in the back of my head. I can always go back. I can get a doctorate. I can teach. Um, 
And it, things kept going on that upward trend. That's so amazing. So I didn't go back. You didn't go back. No. And you've been and shooting for the stars ever since. I love that. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>